Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the first episode of the Hello, Old Sports podcast for the year 2021. We'd like to thank you, as always, for your listenership to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. This episode will be entirely devoted to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Later this month, the Baseball Writers Association of America will announce the inductees for 2021 into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And we thought it would be a good opportunity for us to give our thoughts on both the carryover nominees, those who have been on the ballot for a few years, many years in some cases, and as well, the first-year nominees. Andrew, how are you today? I am doing well. Um, you've already slightly annoyed me. Now that we're into the 20s, at least, you need to get on the 2021 bandwagon and stop saying 2021. It was one thing when it was 2008. <laughs> you need to hop on the 20 bandwagon. We're not going to do this for the whole rest of the century. So but, it's 2021? Yes. That's All right. Okay. But very important. We can st- we can re-record if you'd like. No, I think we're good. But <laughs> thank you for correcting me. Uh, just a few housekeeping notes before we begin. We'd like to encourage you, as always, to interact with the show on Facebook at Hello Old Sports Podcast. We are going to put up a Hall of Fame poll for you all to give your feedback. And as we mentioned last week, the more that our fans and listeners interact with the page, the more likely it is to appear not only in your Facebook news feed, but in everybody else's feed as well. In addition, you can email the show at helloworldsports at gmail.com. If you have not yet, please, using your podcast app of choice, please subscribe, rate, review, all of those good things just to increase the visibility of the show. We are planning a number of episodes for the beginning part of this year. And if you would like to have any feedback, if you have any suggestions for topics that you would like to see us cover, please feel free to reach out about that and let us know. We're also in the market for guests to come on. If you would like to discuss something in the history of sports, anything at all that is of particular interest or Note to you, please let us know, and we'd be glad to have you on as a guest. And then I would also just like to encourage all of you to check out the Sports History Network in general and some of the other great podcasts. We're adding new podcasts to the network, it seems like, almost every week. So lots of good content there if you don't get enough sports history from Andrew and myself. So before we begin, I just want to talk about a few quick notes related to the Baseball Hall of Fame and two things right off the bat that are the results of the COVID-19 
pandemic. First of all, those who are inducted in 2021 are going to be joined at their ceremony by the inductees for 2020, those who were elected a year ago but were not able to have a ceremony because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so there are four such individuals, Derek Jeter and Larry Walker, who were elected by the writers. And then from the Veterans Committee, Ted Simmons, the catcher of the 1970s and 80s, as well as Marvin Miller, one of the pioneers with and the not the first, but the most prominent head of the Baseball Players Association. Those four, Miller has passed away, and I believe Simmons has actually passed away as well, but let me double-check on that. Simmons has not passed away, and I apologize to Ted Simmons. So Jeter, Walker, and Simmons will all be inducted in person. Miller will be commemorated since he has passed away. So whoever is elected from 2021 will be joined at the in Cooperstown hopefully this summer by the 2020 inductees and then the other thing that i would mention is that the veterans committee which is actually now four different committees that meet on a set schedule again due to covid will not be meeting this year and this was scheduled to be the earliest of the four committees sort of the committee that covers years going from the very early days of baseball until basically World War II era, the mid-1940s. That committee was scheduled to meet this year. It will not, so they will meet next year. My understanding is everything is just getting pushed back a little bit, so whatever Veterans Committee was supposed to meet in 21 will not meet until 22. So everything is going to be pushed back a year as far as the Veterans Committee is concerned but the Baseball Writers Association, since they do not vote in person, will still cast their ballots. Uh, why don't I go ahead and read the players who are going to be considered on the Writers Association ballot this year. So as far as first-year players are concerned, here is the list. Michael Kadir, Latroy Hawkins, Nick Swisher, A.J. Burnett, Shane Victorino, Aramis Ramirez, Barry Zito, Dan Harron, Tori Hunter, Mark Burley, and Tim Hudson. And those who remain on the ballot from previous years, which means they have not been inducted, not been elected, but have also not dropped below the 5% threshold that would have them be dropped off the ballot. There are 14 individuals. Those are Bobby Abreu, Andy Pettit, Sammy Sosa, Andrew Jones, Jeff Kent, Manny Ramirez, Todd Helton, Gary Sheffield, Billy Wagner, Scott Rowland, Omar Vizquel, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and Kurt Schilling. Nobody is in their 10th year of eligibility, which would be their last year before dropping off the ballot, but there are I believe four individuals who are in their ninth year, so they're second to last year, and those are Sosa, Bonds, Clemens, and Schilling. And what you had just read, you read them in 
reverse order in terms of vote percentages they got last year. So like Bobby Abreu just stays on the ballot. He got 5.5% of the vote. The only four who were above 50% last year, actually the only four who were above 35% were Vizquel with 52.6, Bonds with 60.7, Clemens with 61, and then Schilling with 70. And it takes 75% to, uh, to get inducted. So those were the only four who were really even somewhat close last year. And I think we should also note right at the start of this that this is almost entirely for each guy, almost each guy. Maybe maybe there's somebody that I'm missing here, but there there is an off the field component to basically every name on here who theoretically would have a shot at getting in. So just to note that we're going to have to discuss some of the off the field issues and those listening can probably figure out what some of those issues are. We're going to have to talk about the off-the-field issues for some of these guys as well because at least with the top three and probably with some of the others as well, there's a pretty good chance that they would be in were it not for one off-the-field issue or another. So, Andrew, why don't we start out this way? Why don't you tell me those on the ballot, who is on your ballot? Who would make it in for you? All right. And I will, I will get to that in one second. I did just want to say, I understand the PD conversation is kind of played out at this point and, you know, everybody's, I don't think too many people are changing their opinions and, you know, it, it's sort of a topic that, I, you know, even myself, I'm kind of like, I don't need to hear more people debate this, but it, when you talk about the hall of fame, it's kind of unavoidable. So we are going to have to wade into that a little bit. So here is my ballot. I have right at the top bonds and Clemens. I have Manny Ramirez Omar Vizquel, and Scott Rowland. Those are the five that I have definitely on my list for this year. And there's one omission which we'll get to, and I'll explain why not this year. But we'll, those are my five. Okay. So let's take this from sort of from the bottom, I guess, of what you listed. I don't know that I would include Scott Rowland. He was a good fielder, eight gold gloves, won a World Series with the Cardinals in 2006, seven-time All-Star. His numbers, to me, I don't really see anything in Roland's numbers that make him a particularly attractive candidate. So what was your reason for putting him on? Well, he's ninth in war among third basemen of all time, um, which, you know, we've talked, I know you've mentioned before how the hall of fame has sort of a weird, you know, sort of almost bias against third basemen where there's a lot less third basemen in the hall of fame. I mean, I, I know war is not the be all and end all statistic, but it is an important statistic and he's ninth in it at his position all time, which unless you're saying there shouldn't be nine third basemen in the hall of fame, then I think he's, you know, certainly would, that would alone would warrant it Had a career of almost 20 years. It was an all-star, what, seven or eight times finished the MVP voting a few times. I don't, it's not a shoe in, but you know, to me, I guess he would meet that threshold of being a, I know people like to say, oh, it's not the hall of very good or whatever, but just won a bunch of gold gloves, was an all-star a bunch of times, you know, finished in the top 15 or 20 in MVP voting. 
if you were redrawing up the Hall of Fame, I don't know that I'd have him in there, but based on some of the other guys who are in the Hall of Fame, I think he's in league with some of those guys and, and you know, is justified in earning a spot. But I get it's a borderline case. I'm with you on Manny. I would put Manny in. If you look at some of these numbers that he put up as far as batting average was concerned, 351 in 2000, 349 in 2000 with the Red Sox, that was his only batting title. He had years, how many years of over 40 home runs? I'm counting one, two, three, four, five. He was a great and very dangerous right-handed hitter. So I would put him there. I think people also tend to overlook what he did in Cleveland before the Red Sox. I mean, he had a year, he had two back-to-back years in Cleveland in 98 and 99, where he had 45 and 145. And then in 99, 44 home runs, 165 RBIs, while batting 333. And he followed that up the next year with a year where he hit 351 and had 38 home runs and 122 RBIs. So those are his last three years in Cleveland, and he had some 100 RBI seasons before that in his early 20s. So the Red Sox years obviously are what people think of, but he was dominating Cleveland in, in the middle of a really good offensive team. The two strikes against him, I think, are, first of all, his behavior, just his temperament sort of late in his career, the whole Manny being Manny thing, which I think he kind of forced his way out of Boston late in his career, and then he was he was with Tampa Bay for five games at the end of his career, spent some time in Chicago before that. He kind of... I don't know how many PD tests he failed, but I think it was multiple if I'm remembering correctly. And just sort of his general, just, I guess, oddness. There's a story about signing a contract for several million dollars and then asking the owner to borrow money so he could fix his car or something. And the owner said, well, you just signed a multi-million dollar contract. And Manny goes, oh, I thought I didn't get that until the end of the season. I didn't realize I got paid right away. So just a lot of really strange things. Not that that story is a reason why he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. The only other thing I would mention about Manny is that he only won one batting title. Now, that's not necessarily a knock on him because he had several years where he hit over 320 or over 330, but you'd think he would have more batting titles than just the one. There's a great story about Manny Ramirez before we move on in the 2004 World Series where the Cardinals thought that he was stealing signs and they caused a little bit of an uproar with the umpire, and Terry Francona came out to defend his player, and he said to the umpire, he says, Manny doesn't even know our signs. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I I would agree with you on Manny Ramirez. Let me just – go ahead. Tested positive twice, uh, once in May of 09, suspended 50 games, and then two years later with the Rays, he was 100-game suspension, which he just, that ended his career. So those were the two tests. I think I probably would need a little more from you on Vizquel. Well, A, he's going to get in this year. That's going to happen. The offensive numbers are not great. It's going to be the same sort of, principal that got rolling in. I mean, he won how many gold gloves in a row? Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine gold gloves in a row, 11 gold gloves total at the most important defensive position on the field. I mean, I guess you could talk about catcher if you want to involve all of that. Offensive numbers don't impress you very much, but he was a career 272 hitter. It's not like it was, uh, you know, he wasn't an awful 
offensive player. It's not like he hit 210 or anything like that. On base percentage of 336, but really just for being a dominant fielder for such a long period of time at the most important defensive position on the field. And the fact that the Hall of Fame voters seem to be inching towards putting him in anyway. That's that's why I had him on the list was just primarily because of defense and being one of the best defensive shortstops of all time. I think that's fair. And I think that one knock on him might be that he only made three all-star teams, but you also have to recognize that that was the time period when Jeter, Nomar, A-Rod, even Miguel Tejada were. And I have to be honest, I don't put a lot of faith into that stuff in the modern era, knowing that first of all, the fans choose the first all the first starters. And then the second, you know, the, the reserves are a combination of the manager who, you know, isn't always objective about it. And, you know, the other players and things. So it matters. But to me, if I see a guy winning all these gold gloves and then not making all-star teams, I'm like, well, we know what that was about, you know, or not. We know what that was about, but like I weight the gold gloves a lot more. Yeah. And 12 gold gloves is 12 gold gloves. Absolutely. All right. So your last two were bonds and Clemens. At a certain point, this just basically becomes the steroid conversation. Both of these guys have been steadily sort of trending up to over 60%. And I believe it's rare for a person to hit 60% and not get in. Now, they each only have two more years. The writers changed the rules about seven or eight years ago so that a guy would only have 10 years on the ballot. They used to stay in for 15. And famously, Jim Rice was one guy who I don't think got in until like the 14th or 15th ballot. So there were players who would occasionally benefit from this this extra five years that they would have. There's no doubting the Hall of Fame credentials of Bonds and Clemens. I guess there's really two arguments related to steroids for keeping them out one is sort of the the morals clause of the fact that they did do something even though that there was no testing they did do something that was against the rules of major league baseball in using a banned substance and that's sort of a a morality clause type of thing i don't accept that argument just because i think that so many guys were doing it at that point. I'm not as I'm not as anti anti steroids as some people are. Some people take the idea that you would not vote for a guy who was known to use steroids as the biggest affront in the history of mankind. I'm not on vote that. Former that you were, would vote for them. Some people take the fact that you would actually both. To be honest with you, but I think there's people who. I think there's people who think that you would not vote for somebody because of steroids as a huge affront. And then there's a a lot of people I think who think that you would vote for somebody with steroids as a huge affront. I'm not really affronted either way. I just think that when you talk about the quote unquote steroid guys, you're really only talking about a couple. You're talking about Clemens, Bonds, and maybe one day A-Rod. And then maybe, you know, Ortiz maybe, and you talked about Manny and some of these other guys, but I think that if you let Clemens and Bonds into the Hall of Fame, which they certainly are deserving, and this was sort of the other point that I was getting to, it's an inexact science, but both guys seemingly have 
not started doing steroids until a time in their career where if you would cut things off right there, they would both have been Hall of Famers anyway. And so I just think to not have those two guys in when their on-field careers are so clearly deserving, I think it'd be better for the Hall of Fame if we just kind of let those two guys in and then called it a day. Yeah, you'll notice I don't have Sammy Sosa there. I'm not on a crusade. My, my point with my thing with the steroids is a couple of things. One, they made their point. The writers have made their point. They've made it over and over again. I was fine with not letting those guys in the first year, the first two years. They made their point about the steroids. And I think kind of feeding, I'm not even going to debate their, I mean, Barry Mons is the all-time leader in home runs. We don't need to go through his numbers. It's about, you know, the reason he's not in the Hall of Fame is about the steroids. I'm not somebody who's like, hey, it was fine. It was great. It was a great era. I get it. It was not great for the game. We have the most famous records in baseball now don't mean anything. Nobody's ever going to hit 73 home runs again, so we don't even get to talk about the home run record because it doesn't mean anything. It stopped meaning something when, when McGuire and Sosa broke it in 98 and then broke it again in 99, or they, they passed 62 again in 99. So I'm not like a blanket. And I think what happened was the writers have a tendency to be stuffed shirts. Let's be honest about it. Got so in high dudgeon about steroids that other people, the reaction to that was like, if you factor that in at all, you're, you're, you know, a Puritan and you're not being realistic. And I do agree. There's a balancing act. I think those two guys and, and a rod as well, when he gets there are so far and above anybody from that era in terms of performance, whether on steroids or not on them, that if you were just and sort of my thing with like a guy like Sosa, if you were purely a power hitter in a power era and we have good evidence that it was because of steroids, then I'm going to ding you for that. But the two of them, I mean, pitchers is a whole different story, but Bonds was a complete player, you know, going back to his years in Pittsburgh and stood the test of time that I'm not going to say, well, just because he did steroids is the only reason he was a good baseball player. There are a few guys, you look at the year Brady Anderson hit all those home runs, and it's like, all right, well, that was probably because of steroids and very little else. And, you know, you've heard me say this a million times before, but I'm going to reiterate it. It's not a coincidence that the three guys who have been come down the hardest on for steroids, Bonds, A-Rod, and Clemens, are three guys that people were not inclined to like to begin with. With this for the for Clemens and A-Rod specifically, they were sort of men without a home from a fan base standpoint because none of their neither fan, you know, the Clemens had all his great years with the Red Sox and then left the Red Sox for the Yankees. But I don't think Yankee fans and I mean he was with Toronto in between, but you know, I don't think Red Sox fans particularly embraced him after his Red Sox career was over. A-Rod was three different places. The Yankee fans never fully warmed up to him. Reporters never really liked him to begin with. And t- I will never accept that it's a coincidence that suddenly when, when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were hitting home runs, by and large, everybody was cool with it. And, oh, yeah, they're breaking all these records. And, you know, maybe they're on Andro or whatever the argument was then, but they're great players. And then all of a sudden it was Bonds. And Bonds was a jerk to the media and to a lot of his teammates and things. And he probably deserved most of the criticism he got. But all of a sudden there was this huge stand against steroids and the records and things because they didn't like Barry Bonds. And that's not to say some of the steroid arguments aren't valid, 
But with these two, and with Manny as well, because he was so dominant for such a period of time, they've made their point, is my is my argument. And whatever point they were making is fine, but now it's like, just put them in on their 10th year, or this year, really this year, put them in, get it over with, and it's not like now you're going to have 30 more guys of their caliber to have to consider from a, a steroid standpoint. Definitely. All right, so... I think you sort of convinced me on Vizquel. I'm still not entirely there on Scott Rowland. I agree. It's a borderline case. So I have four. I have those four Mm -hmm. sort of going forward. And my ballot is actually a little bit. I have more guys on my ballot than you do. Just to go through a couple guys who maybe kind of just miss for me. Sheffield, Gary Sheffield put up some really good numbers. He probably over 500 career home runs. He is a guy who I think maybe the steroids did maybe help push him over that line. So I probably come up just short on Gary Sheffield, but he's somebody that I'm willing to maybe examine a little bit more. Andy Pettit as a Yankee fan did win five World Series. Now, Andy Pettit has this reputation as a great big game pitcher, but I don't know if you recall, he also had some really some not-so-great postseason games. So, never won a Cy Young Award, only won 21 games. Well, he only won 20 games twice, and both times they were 21-8 and seasons for the Yankees in 96. And in 2003... So another guy who maybe if I looked a little more, I might make an argument. Now the HGH stuff is going to keep Andy Pettit out of the hall of fame forever, but somebody else who maybe bears us a little bit of a look, but should have won the Cy Young in 96. I don't know that that would make the difference, but should have won the Cy Young in 96. The, The way I looked at him and Sheffield and Sheffield, I think has a stronger case is just that if I'm putting the top two, and Manny as well. If I'm putting three steroid guys in, especially the two leaders of it who had to wait for so long, I can't consider a bunch more steroid guys until the following year. That was a fair point. I looked at it and Pettit. I'm not sure belongs in anyway, you know, and I love Andy Pettit. He's probably my favorite pitcher, starting pitcher on those Yankee teams. I love that. He came back. And he was always he was always Tory's like game three starter because Tory always thought game three was really important. And you know you've heard me say this a million times before. If he was on the team in 04, there's no way that would have happened because he would have started a game between games four and seven and just shut them down, and and they would have won the series. And you know can't forget he had some dominant years with Houston as well. Had some really good years with Houston, but um, you know you can't overlook the the fact that he did have a positive test and and that's gonna factor in. I think you can make a case for Kent, for Jeff Kent. I think you can potentially make a case for Billy Wagner. It's one of those where if you agree that the position of closer is important and they've already got Rivera, obviously, they've already got Lee Smith, who just went in a year or so ago. You've got Eckersley. You've got Raleigh Fingers. You've got Goose Gossage. If we tend to agree that the position of closer has been an important one for the last 40 or so years, we probably should have a few more closers in 
baseball. Now, unlike some of those other guys I mentioned, Billy Wagner never put up huge performances in big spots, but he, and I'm looking, he never even led the league in saves. So I would probably, again, a guy who maybe bears some discussion, but not somebody who I would necessarily put on my ballot. I I agree with that. I looked at him because I'm I'm somebody who's like, yeah, closers are important. Like there shouldn't be some anti-closer bias. So I was honestly looking for a reason to put Wagner in there. But then I looked and I'm like, yeah, you know, he had good numbers, but like he was better than some of these guys. But there was a time when closers were kind of ephemeral where for two years there was a new best closer in baseball, Gagne or uh, K-Rod. K-Rod. And then wasn't there a guy for maybe Seattle for a couple of years I'm for I anyway, I'm I'm but there was guys who had a year or two and Wagner was better than that. But as I was looking, I'm like, am I trying to squeeze him in where he maybe doesn't make the cut? And I don't think it's an anti-closer bias. I just think you know, he just kind of went on the outside for me. So I do think more closers will get in, but I don't know that he's the next one in. And then the only other one who did not make my ballot who I was slightly intrigued by was Todd Helton. Mm-hmm. You talk about offensive numbers. He hit 372 one year. He hit 336, 320, 347, 358. Won a batting title in 2000 is his best year. He led the league in hits with 216, in RBIs of 147, and in batting average at 372. And he hit 42 home runs. So I'd have to imagine. I wonder who would have been in 2000, who would have had more home runs than 42 in the National League. Barry Bonds? Did Bonds have more that year? In 2000? The record was, he broke the record in 01. Yeah, I'm going to guess he, in 2000, he hit 49. Okay, so he beat Helton out by like seven. All right, so Todd Helton was a Barry Bonds season away from winning a triple crown. All right, well, now, again, I don't think that would necessarily put him over the hump. And obviously, you have to factor in Coors Field. But when you look just at offensive numbers, Helton is a guy, again, who maybe deserves another look. All right. So I have three guys on my ballot that you don't. Okay. And right. two of them, I think, our conversation about Vizquel is probably informative. The first guy I have is Tory Hunter. I had him on my list. I had two guys, him specifically of guys who are first year eligible, who I think deserve a lot more credit than they'll get. I was, you know, originally had Hunter listed and I'll I'll let you make the point in a second. I didn't mean to jump on you. I originally had him and then every article I'm read, like, oh, he should be able to stay on the ballot above the 5% threshold. And I'm like, well, maybe I'm way off on this. So I, I, you can absolutely talk me into Hunter because I gave him some consideration. Nine gold gloves at center field. In center field, probably the third most important defensive position behind shortstop and catcher. Mm-hmm. He was not a guy who had no offense. He had 353 home runs in his career. Never really led the league in any offensive category. And from a big moment point of view, there's really not much there. Never won a World Series. Was on those Twins teams that were decent in the early 2000s. And then floated around angels, tigers, that type of thing. So if you're looking for a big moment player, 
Torrey Hunter is not it. His most famous moment was probably robbing Barry Bonds of a home run in the All-Star game that year. So I don't know that you can justify it as sort of a big name, big moment type of guy, but he would probably get my vote. I'm, I'm having my doubts a little bit now that I'm talking about it, but if you're going to say that defensive is important, I think that he's probably a guy who would get my vote. And then the other guy that I would put on, and this one I feel more strongly about, is Andrew Jones. Very similar numbers-wise when you look at them. Um, I feel a little more strongly about um, Hunter. Like I said, I, I came out just on the opposite side of that with Hunter, but I think some of that was just reading the articles and hearing them say like, I hope he'll probably get 5%. And I was like, maybe I shouldn't be out on this limb, but um, you know, just real quick on Hunter. I, I agree with you with the, you know, good offensive player, good enough offensive player with his defense to justify it. And even though none of them weren't specifically like world series, he was one of those like highlight real players where you'd be watching sports center the next morning. And it was like, Oh, Tory Hunter made this insane play. So I'll agree with you on that. Andrew Jones I was actually surprised his numbers weren't better than they were. Um, You know, early in the career was very, very, very good. And then, you know, kind of trailed off a little bit later in his career. But um, go ahead and make the case for him. I'm sorry. No, I think that is sort of the case. I think he put up some monster offensive years. He had 51 home runs. One year retires with what is it, 434 mm-hmm. career home runs, batting average 254, not much to write home about. But I think the combination of the offense and the defense for Jones probably pushes him over the top. Yeah, and and it, I think you and I probably looked at it the same way. It's just sort of a where do you draw the line thing. And I don't even know that I was right on where I drew the line. I guess I just decided to go with less than more, but you know, it, a lot of the the arguments that people make about the hall of fame are dumb because people go like, Oh, you have to have been a dominant player. And it's like, okay, but you have to, have, you couldn't have just had three good years. It's like, so the only people in the hall of fame had to have been dominant players for 15 years. Like how, <laughs> how many people, and also how many people can be dominant at once? Do we have a rule on that? You know what I mean? Can you have 14 guys in the league at the same time who were dominant? And then, you know, some people go, oh, well, you know, he was never on good teams or he was, you know, so it's like, it's hard to make the consistent, nobody's going to have the same, you know, and then the dumbest argument that I have is people go like, oh, you know, nobody ever bought a ticket to see him play. And it's like, how many guys fall into that category? You know, so, so Babe Ruth and Willie Mays would be the only ones in the hall of fame for you. Like, there are guys who are unquestionably Hall of Famers who it wasn't like people said, oh, so-and-so's in town. We have to go see him. That doesn't make them not Hall of Famers. I agree. I think that that ship has sailed. I think it probably sailed from at some point in the early 1950s. And it's just they've decided that the Hall of Fame is more than just the greatest of the great of all time. There's another tier of player who we consider still to be Hall of Famers. So we only have one guy left to discuss, and I think everybody can probably guess who that is, and that's Kurt Schilling. I would say that it's probably the case that off-the-field issues are the reason why Schilling is not in the Hall of Fame. So I put him on. 
I don't minimize the offensive. I'm sorry. I don't minimize well, offensive. Maybe is the right word there. I don't minif- minimize the off the field issues, but I think that I would just put him in anyway, because I just don't want to get into assessing the off the field issues before we get into that. Do you agree that based just on the on field, he deserves to get in because for a while, there were some questions. He only won 216 career games, never won a Cy Young. He had some all-star appearances, but he also had some mediocre years. Like So, for instance, in 2000, he was 11 and 12. In 1906, he was 9 and 10. So he had some mediocre years. Would you agree that were it not for the all would would Schilling be on your ballot were it not for the off the field issues? Yes. And, you know, it's kind of funny because for a while, you're right. It was like, ah, he's a borderline case. But now it's kind of become a thing where it's like, no, he would be a definite Hall of Famer if it wasn't for this other stuff. Um, Yeah. When you look at it again, it's between the big moments, which do matter, you know, the World Series with Arizona and then with uh, with. Philadelphia or with Boston, to be honest, and this is kind of a debate for nothing. I think if he went into the Hall of Fame, he should go in as a Diamondback. They would probably put him in as a Red Sox. But just being a part of that, you know, run with him and Johnson, where they were so dominant and they won that World Series, basically just relying on the two of them. The I don't even remember. I think they pitched Schilling on like two days rest in the one game in that series. Um, you know, was really the, and then after Pedro left in 04, he was the ace of that Red Sox team for the next few years in his late thirties. I do think his performance, although like you said, never made a Cy Young or never won a Cy Young, did finish second a couple of times, I believe both three times. And I believe a couple of times were to his teammate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think not a slam dunk and I'm sure people could argue against him from a baseball standpoint, but I think he would be over that threshold for me, especially pitching most of his career in a hitter-dominated era. Yeah, the guy I always compared him with, and maybe this isn't fair, but because that was Mike Mussina. Now, Mussina won 50 or so more games than Schilling did in, in a shorter career. But my thought was that when Mussina went in with no championships and no real big game performances, that Schilling with three championships and several big playoff game performances deserve to get in based on that. So and just let me on the big game thing. It's like, I don't believe in punishing guys for not having the opportunity, but I also believe in rewarding guys who, when they have the opportunity pitch really well in them. Yeah. You can't ignore it. I agree. I think it's, I think that there are more than one way to get to the hall of fame. Now, obviously Joe Carter is not a hall of famer because of his one big home run, but Mazeroski. Well, yeah, no, Mazeroski. Mazeroski. Well, again, we're going to talk about defense. Mazeroski was Mazeroski probably doesn't get in without that home run, but he was a really good defensive player, also. But you're, it's not a not a not a bad point. But I think that, like you said, the big moment can supplement a career that was borderline. Otherwise, now you've chosen to leave Schilling off. Why don't you just talk a little bit about your thought process behind that? Sure, and and I will be very brief on this. Um, my argument with Kurt Schilling, and I I don't want to make this a laundry list, but I also don't want to just reduce this to him being considered an outspoken conservative or something like that. As of a couple of years ago, he was an ESPN broadcaster just to sort of put the fine tuning on 
his sort of he was an ESPN broadcaster who, you know, I think in his social media presence was clear on where he stood politically. But things have spiraled. And the reason I say not this year is as of this last week, he is actively pushing saying that the president should institute martial law and overturn the results of an election. That's this week. That wasn't something he tweeted anti-transgender five years ago. That wasn't, um, you know, criticism of Obama, all of which you can find plenty of. He is actively at the moment engaging in a lot of these conspiracy theories and, you know, hateful rhetoric against half of the country. He needs to behave himself for a year. And that doesn't mean he needs to shut up. That doesn't mean he needs to, you know, not believe what he believes, even if I don't personally respect a lot of what he believes, if we're being honest about it. I can't see them, and I wouldn't either vote for the man. And I get, oh, it shouldn't matter. I can't see them actively voting for the man next month when he's actively right now. And very little chance of this getting better in the next few weeks engaging in this. He needs to behave himself and then vote him in, you know, vote him in. And I'm sure, you know, I don't normally believe in punishing people for off the field stuff, but it's not just like he's, he's above and beyond with some of the things he's said and done and, you know, comparing Muslims to Nazis and things like that, not really apologizing for any of it. So uh, that's why I landed on it, even though yes, performance wise, he should get in. That's, you know, fairly or unfairly, that was my thought process. I would just raise a few points um, sort of on different sides of it. I think that the writers probably haven't done themselves any favors in this area because they've been perceived in the past as using their Hall of Fame vote to settle personal scores Mm -hmm. with guys. And so now it seems like they're using their votes to settle political scores i think and then then you're right it goes beyond just political beliefs but i think the writers probably haven't done themselves any favors i think that Schilling hasn't done himself any favors with not stopping at a certain point maybe he should realize the effect that this is having on his candidacy and if it's that important to him he should just stop. And I do think I just to give, and this is sort of an anecdotal example, but three or four years ago, must've been four years ago in the midst of the 2016 election, he was on Joe and Evan in New York, WFAN sports talk, straight sports talk radio show. It's not a mix. It's a sports show. Yes. And those are rarely, those are very much missed in New York city these days. Uh, (laughs) That's a whole nother episode. Yeah, we may do we may do a WFAN episode at some point. But um, anyway, he came on. And it was during, I guess it was during the 16 playoffs or whenever it was. And like the first thing out of his mouth, they asked him a question. And he said, yeah, well, expecting so-and-so to pitch well would be like expecting Hillary Clinton to tell the truth. And it's like, I don't want to hear that from you. Like, I don't want to hear it. I wouldn't want to hear it on the other side either. It's just sports talk. Do sports talk. He's not done a good job of mixing it. The other thing I think I would mention is, God willing there will be a hall of fame induction ceremony this year. Mm-hmm. And that is intended to be sort of a return to normalcy, 
a celebration of baseball, which is something that's supposed to unite baseball fans and Americans. The idea that somebody might, even just tangentially, at some point during that weekend, trying to inject sort of the ugliest of political conflict at a moment when it's not what people, and maybe it's never what people want, but at a moment when it's very much not needed at the Hall of Fame ceremony in July, I think that's something that he needs to be conscious of. Now, I would vote for him because I don't want to get into the idea of, and I'm not a Hall of Fame voter, so who cares what I think, but I wouldn't want to get into a situation where we're sort of judging one direction or the other. This is acceptable. That's not acceptable. I would just look at the pure sort of on the field stuff. But if ever there was a year to not chance Kurt Schilling with a microphone in front of him for three days, I can understand why people would not want that to be the case in 2021. And truthfully, I think he knows if he shuts up for a year or just tones it down for a year, he would probably get in. But he's posted things recently like, no, nah, they won't put me in. 95% of baseball writers are liberals. And they, you know, so I think he's aware of what he's doing. And I think he's decided it's better for him to be a martyr uh, for his cause. And, you know, so again, I, I understand people saying it shouldn't be about that. And, and I, to me, it's a, it's a wide line. You know, I'm not saying, well, he opposes the repeal of the estate tax, so he shouldn't get in. To me, this is just a little too far over the line and that he's still doing it. Um, I did overlook one thing on this, not on Schilling, but in general, which is that the only appropriate Hall of Fame ballot is to vote for Latroy Hawkins 10 times. <laughs> that would be the only appropriate way to do it. Um, and he has to have a different plaque for every team he pitched on. So he has to have 15 plaques. <laughs> For those who don't know, basically you just have to have been retired for five years and have played 10 years in the majors. So some of the people, and it's always fun to get see. Get a vote. He'll get a vote. Somebody will vote for him. Let me just look back and see if I can pull it up with some level of ease. Let's just look at last year's ballot. Yeah, so most guys, while you're pulling that up, most guys go on the ballot. If you don't get 5%, you come right off. So every usually at least a guy who, God, if you look at his baseball history page it's got so many different uniforms but um so last year guys with one vote Raul Abanez JJ Putz Brad Penny and Adam Dunn the the previous year nobody got one vote Placido Polanco got two votes and we'll just we won't do this all day but let me just go back and look at and then the year before that, LeVon Hernandez and Carlos Lee each only got one vote. So it is sort of always interesting to see. And you, you just, the ballots are anonymous, although a lot of writers have been putting their ballots out recently for one reason or another. But it is always interesting to see. You'd love to know the story behind those guys who get one or two votes, whether those voters legitimately think that those guys are hall of famers or whether they have some other reason. Wasn't there a guy in like the forties? I think I heard Keith Olbermann talk about this once who like each sports writer, like really liked the guy. So they all gave him kind of like a courtesy vote and he got in because they, I mean, it wasn't like a shameful thing, but like you really had no business getting in the hall of fame. I don't know that story, but I have heard that when um, Lloyd Wayner of the Pirates mm. was inducted or voted in 
they looked at the stats for his brother, who was Paul Wayner, <laughs> and they who had already gotten in, and they let him in. Now that might be apocryphal, but anyway, it's uh, it's always a very interesting, and this is the only sport where you get that. Occasionally, the Basketball Hall of Fame is just not worth the paper it's printed on. Occasionally in the NFL, you'll get so Jerry Kramer hadn't gotten in for so many years. So you'll earn like there was the thing with Michael Irvin 10 or 15 years ago because everybody was talking about his off the field issues. Occasionally it will be newsworthy whether or not somebody gets into the football hall of fame, but this is the only sport, especially when you consider that we're still considering guys from 1870 in every 10 years in the veterans committee. And then you got Negro league guys you got. So it's, it's the only one that's still a lot of fun to look at. I think it might have been Ernie Lombardi might have been who they were talking about where he's, you know, made a bunch of all-star teams, but you know, that might have been who they were talking about. I I can't remember exactly, but he's on this list of least deserving Hall of Famers and he was a catcher and I feel like I remember it being a catcher. So, so check out on January the 26th, 2021, which I believe is probably a Monday because they usually do it. 26th is a Tuesday. The 26th is a Tuesday. So it's a Tuesday. Check that out. That's the announcement. They'll join Jeter, Walker, Miller, and Simmons in being inducted, hopefully this summer. And thank you all for joining us on our dive into the 2021 writers ballot for the baseball hall of fame until next time i'm dan newman and i'm andrew newman goodbye old sports this podcast is part of the sports history network your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport you can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com hey there sports history fan this is arnie chapman a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month For the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast, we'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.